0: Be seated. Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 11. If you're in the three to four year old class, we want to thank you for worshiping with us. And I want to invite you to go back with Miss Nicole to your classes. And we'll be in Mark chapter 11 this morning, starting in verse 27. Starting in verse 27. As you're turning there, let me set the context for us. In Mark chapter 11, uh, we've been journeying through the the gospel of Mark since last Easter, Easter of uh, 2021. And uh, as we've been working through, we've noticed that Mark is very careful by the way he arranges his material in the gospel of Mark. Everything is intentional. In fact, he's intentional with how much time he spends uh, communicating certain things. And so what we'll notice about the Gospel of Mark is that time is slowing down now. So uh, we saw the first three years of Jesus's ministry from Mark chapter 1 through to Mark chapter 10. And now as Jesus approaches the place in which he will be crucified... Uh, the, the climax of the story of not only the Gospel of Mark, but of the whole Bible, as he approaches the cross, then time starts to slow down. So where we spent you know, just ten chapters on three years, now all of a sudden we're going to spend two whole chapters on just three days. And then it slows down even more, and we'll spend two whole chapters on just one day, which is the day of Christ's crucifixion. We turn to the end of chapter 11, where Jesus has entered Jerusalem, the city in which he'll face crucifixion. And we've already studied the first day, uh, that he, the first full day that he was there in Jerusalem. And we found that the first thing that Jesus does, he goes into the temple, the place where God was to be worshipped. And Jesus is appalled by what he sees there. He goes into the city, into the temple, and Jesus causes a scene. He rebukes the religious system in place. He flips tables. He pours money out of of the money changers who are there. He drives out the animals and the people, selling and taking advantage of people in the temple. His first full day in the city of Jerusalem was a big day. (laughs) And what happens now... Is we begin to realize that that was a big day, a big moment, but it's not the last of the conflict that Jesus will have with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Beginning in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, Mark presents a series of seven conflict stories where tensions rise between Jesus and the hypocritical, fruitless religious leaders of the temple. And these conflicts, these seven conflicts with these leaders, extend all the way to the end of Mark chapter 12. And so for several weeks, every week, we'll be coming in and we'll be seeing a confrontation between Jesus, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, and between people who claim to be religious but are denying Jesus. And in these conflicts... We learn a lot about Jesus, we learn a lot about his teachings, but we also learn a lot about the nature of our sinfulness. So the religious leaders of the temple, also known as the Sanhedrin, they are going to be the organized force which arranges and pushes through the plan to have Jesus crucified. So if there's ever an evil group of people in the Bible to sort of look at and analyze, to find how sinfulness works, the Sanhedrin become the poster child. For the way a sinful heart deceives you and deceives others to be against the will of God rather than for the will of God. And so as we study the interactions, we're wanting to ask questions. We're we're wanting to ask questions like, what is Jesus like? We're wanting to ask questions about what he's teaching. But then we're also wanting to ask questions how do I see sinfulness manifesting itself here in these people? And how do I see that same manifestation creeping into my own heart? So those are the type of questions that we move into verse 27 with. So let's, let's read together and then let's pray for God to grant us understanding. Verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem... And he was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. It was the baptism of John... From heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together. God, we come to you and we pray that you would protect us from the fruitless religion manifested in this story. protect protect us from the disposition of the Pharisees and help us to come with open ears to hear words that are true and help us to align our lives with them, God. We pray that, God, I pray that you would help me not to be distracted by anything this morning, but that you would help me to speak with clarity the words of truth. Fill me with your spirit. That you might work the miracle of speaking, understanding, and applying to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? If you're a note taker, I want you to notice the thing that the Pharisees noticed. And truth, number one, Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the authority. The members of the Sanhedrin in the temple recognize something about Jesus that the Gospel of Mark has taught very clearly from the beginning. They're recognizing that when Jesus teaches, or when Jesus does something, that he does it as if he himself is the authority. Now what do I mean by The authority. What what do they mean with the question? Well, if you look in your dictionary, just for a definition of what authority is, authority is different than power, right? Power is the ability to do something, the ability to carry out a task. You have great power if you're able to move something or to accomplish something, but you can have great power to move something and not have the authority to move it, right? Right? See, authority functions differently than power. Authority is both the power and the right to do something. I can't just pull you over for speeding and put you in handcuffs. Even if I had the power to be able to stop you and get you into handcuffs, I do not have the right because I'm not a policeman. (laughs) See, Jesus not only was wielding power... But he was acting as if he had the right to wield it however he pleased. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that the people are amazed not with Jesus' miraculous power, but by the way in which he wields it and the way in which he speaks as if he has the authority to wield it however he pleases. Mark chapter 1, verse 22, this is what the people are amazed by. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. Now what does it mean that Jesus was teaching authoritatively? It means that Jesus spoke with certainty regarding what was true, and he spoke in a way that expected you to respond to that truth, that that you had some sort of accountability and culpability to do something with what he was saying. What he was saying was not an opinion or a suggestion. It was something you had to either uh, conform and submit to or reject. But even more than that, more uniquely, Jesus spoke with an authority as if he was the one who defined truth, who determined truth. Over and over, Jesus said things like, you've heard that it's said, but truly, truly, I say to you. So he's saying, here's where you think the authority lies, and this is the way you thought you should interpret something, but, but listen to me. Do you remember what happened in the transfiguration Where Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up to the top of the mountain, and you see Jesus in all of his glory, and his face is shining, and he's speaking with Moses and Elijah, and Peter's freaking out. Should we make some tents to, like, put you guys in? Because he's afraid he's going to die. And then everything all of a sudden just collapses into Jesus standing there, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, he has the authority. Listen to him. Not only did Jesus speak as if he had authority, he acted. Mark chapter 1 verse 27 says they were all amazed so that they questioned themselves saying, what is this? What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So Jesus, even when he spoke to demons, didn't give them options or suggestions. He spoke and they obeyed, not even wanting to obey. (laughs) He says, come out of them and they just do it. Jesus uniquely exercised authority even in Mark chapter 2 verse 10 to forgive sins. And Mark chapter 2 verse 10 he says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he forgives the paralytic for everything he'd ever done. And the people there recognized exactly what Jesus was claiming. Who can forgive sins except God alone, they say? Jesus was exercising authority that only God had the right to to exercise. And the religious elite were uncomfortable with this, with such exercise of authority. But the one that they're speaking of, particularly when they say, what gives you the authority to do these things? I mean, they're speaking of the, the things from the previous day. The these things that they're referring to are Jesus's antics in the temple, right? I mean, Jesus waltzes into that temple like he owned the place, He begins moving furniture as if it was his furniture. He flips tables, drives people out, rebukes everybody. It's like Jesus had gotten home from a trip to find strangers throwing a house party in his house. And he waltzes up in there and kicks everybody out. Jesus Jesus publicly rebukes an entire worship system as if he had the right. To do so, so that's the question. By what authority do you do these things? You you come into this thirty-five acre temple built to the glory of God, and you think you can just give commands and rebukes to us? Now we know the answer because of what we've seen throughout the gospel. We know Jesus waltzes in the temple like it was built for him because it was. <laughs> We know Jesus waltzes into the temple and commands over the sacrificial system because it was designed for him, by him, and to point to him. We know that he spoke as if he had authority because he does have authority over every molecule molecule of the universe. This is the message of the New Testament about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Do you hear the combination of both power and authority? To wield that power he sits on a throne of authority over the cosmos and over my life and so the sanhedrin come to jesus with that question but they didn't come to jesus with that question truly seeking to know the answer I mean, if they were coming to discover and to submit to Jesus' authority, if they they were really wanting to know from where Jesus got this authority, then, then they would have found themselves in faith coming to Christ, and they would find their sins forgiven, and they too could join the kingdom expanding work. But that's not the intention of the question. They don't really want the answer to this question. They want Jesus to provide them with an opportunity to usurp Jesus's authority. They ask the question in this way because what they want in this moment is to Jesus to very openly, very publicly say that his authority comes from God because he is divine. They want to catch him in an open statement about his divinity so that they can say, you're a blasphemer. And before he has time to teach the people and convince the people of who he is, they want to be able to take him into the street and stone him for what he claims. So they're asking about Jesus' authority so they can eradicate that authority from their lives and from that temple. Now this is the activity and, and intention and disposition of those who live in fruitless, hypocritical religion. And I use the word fruitless there because of the analogy we saw with the fig tree. Remember, Jesus rebuked the fig tree because on the outside it was so leafy and green. But when you get closer, you realize there's no fruit on this thing. That's what he was experiencing in the religious people in the temple. It looks very good, very godly, but upon closer examination, there's no fruit. Now we're getting to see Exactly what that fruitlessness looks like. And this is what it looks like. Truth number two. Fruitless religion resists authority. Fruitless religion resists authority. Jesus has confronted some very serious sin happening in the temple. The Sanhedrin are guilty of exploiting worshippers of of turning the temple into big business but rather than recognizing what Jesus is saying they seek to do what all of us are tempted to do and that is to avoid authority in our lives sin's very nature is not submissive sin is not submissive to good authority it recoils against authority it reacts against authority sin seeks to make us our own authority that's the nature of sin the temptation of the snake in the garden was that humanity put himself in God's authoritative place Genesis 3 5 the snake speaks to Eve God knows when you eat of it your eyes will be open and you will be like God we resist authority predominantly because we want to be the authority Our our hearts are corrupted in such a way that we resist authority in our human relationships. Children resist the authority of their parents. Can I get a witness? Right? Wives resist the authority of their husbands. Employees resist the authority of their bosses. Citizens resist the authority of the government. People resist the authority of God. We don't like being told what to do or even what we should do. And we very much like telling other people what to do. (laughs) In fact, popular opinion, even among today's intellectuals, would say that authority itself is always bad and always leads to bad things. That authority itself should be avoided and that society is a constant restructuring of those who are in authority to take them out of authority and to put new people in authority. And it's not going to be long before they sin and, and abuse that authority. So we remove them from authority. And so society is just a, is one constant rising up to authority and then shedding off of authority because authority itself is bad. But I don't think authority is the root problem. <laughs> it's the sin which wields that authority that is the problem We also resist authority in our lives, not only because we want to be the authority, but we resist authority because we've experienced the abuse of authority, when we've seen it. We've all been both the culprit and the victim of authority abuse. When humans increase their power and authority, it is true that they often wield that authority to build themselves up at the expense of those who are under them. I'm sure I could get a witness on that, right? That people, when they get authority, they use it to get things from you rather than to give things to you. So parents abuse children. And husbands abuse wives. And bosses belittle employees. And governments oppress and persecute their citizens. There is no shortage of examples of bad authority in our world. But that's not Jesus. Jesus wields his authority and control of the universe to give himself to you, to sacrifice himself for you, to lead you into green pastures and still waters. Jesus wields his authority like a good king, in fact, the best king. King David talks about good authority in 2 Samuel chapter 23. We actually heard this text read uh, at a conference we were at this week, and I had already prepared for my lesson, but this just had to make it in there because here's King David at the end of his life speaking about the blessings of having a good king ruling over his people with a good authority. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 23 verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What is God saying through King David here? He's saying that there's a good kind of authority. There's a good type type of ruler in the world. God wields his authority so that those under his authority might flourish. He intends for authority structures on earth to resemble the same formula. Parents should lead over their children in the fear of God for the flourishing of their children. Husbands should oversee their household in the fear of God for the flourishing of his wife. And his children. Pastors should oversee their churches in the fear of God for the flourishing of their church members. We've all seen that role abused. God, who has all authority, gives authoritative commands, and he speaks with authoritative words for the good of his people. So let me pause at this point and ask a question. What is your disposition to Jesus' authority Do you find yourself shaking your fist at God's word saying, what gives you the right to speak something true over me that conflicts with my desires? Do you deny God's word on any issues, any doctrines or any commands and thus make yourselves the authority over this particular issue rather than God? Or do you find yourself humbled when you come to this The scriptures do you find yourself seeking to understand his word so you can submit to it better do you find yourself seeking ways to submit to god's word or do you constantly try to find loopholes try to find ways around the authority of jesus word are you evasive and accusatory when an authoritative word is spoken into your life Are you more naturally argumentative and defensive or are you open and receptive to being corrected and guided? This is a very important question for everyone who claims to be a Christian. Who are you submitting to in your life? If the answer is no one, you are in sin. Because the Bible has given us commands in the scripture that do not allow us to live lives independent from submission to authority. God's Put structures in the world. This verse is for every single person in the room, including me. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And this was speaking specifically of pastoral ministry. And this is one of the problems with Christians who refuse to join a church. You're out there in the world, and you're not responsible to submit to any pastor anywhere because you're doing your own Christian thing. This is why church membership matters, because God has commanded you to obey and submit to particular pastors. And I want to say this, like, hey, submit to Brandon. I submit to Drew and Stephen. This is why we have a plurality of elders in our church, because every one of us are called to live submissive lives, where other people who have authority over us can speak true things to us, and we have to submit to their wisdom being spoken into our lives. Ephesians 5.21 says this about the church body, submitting to one another out of their reverence for Christ. So what is church membership when you commit to a church? What you're saying is, I submit to these people that they will have the right to speak true things into my life. The right. Not just the power. But the right to confront me when I'm living in sin. That's what covenantal church membership is. If you're, not, you're not a part of a church. Nobody has that right. Because you've not given it to anybody. And thus you perpetually live. In unrepentant sin. Because you can't answer that question. Who am I submitting to? The very word submission we hate. When I say it, it makes you twitch a little. I'm watching you. (laughs) But your natural response to imperfect earthly authorities in your life may actually be representative of the true nature of your response to the heavenly authority. Some of y'all slept on that one. Your natural response to imperfect earthly authorities may actually be a clue to you of how you respond to and submit to the heavenly authority. Maybe you're happy enough with God being a co-pilot or a tag-along in your life, but Lord, over your life is a different story. The religious leaders saw the authority of Jesus not as a force for their good, but rather as a competitor to their way of life. So their question in regard to this authority was not a genuine search for truth. It was a a way to accomplish their own goals. And Jesus, as he always does, he sees right through it and he answers in a way that does not give them what they're looking for. (laughs) Jesus knows the intentions of their heart just like he knows the intentions of your heart. And Jesus answers their question as rabbis often did. He answered their question with a question. Mark 11, verse 29. Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Seems out of place. Seems odd if we're not in tune with the context of Mark thus far. But John the Baptist had made a name for himself as a prophet. His preaching was provocative. It may have upset you, but it drew you in. He, he, he drew crowds to hear him preaching in the wilderness. And the people around Israel revealed John as a true prophet from God. They may not have listened to him or obeyed him, but they revered him as truly a prophet sent from God. He was not just any prophet, though, preaching repentance. He was preaching that the, pro- the promised Messiah was near. In fact, he very clearly said that Jesus was that Messiah. So Jesus has a question for the leaders. They were supposed to be teachers of the law. They were supposed to discern who was speaking truth and who was speaking falsehood. They're supposed to guide the people to understand these things. So Jesus' question is appropriate. Was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from man? Answer me. The answer to that question was not so simple for them, though. You see, if they affirmed that John the Baptist's teaching was from heaven, then they were answering their own question about where Jesus was getting his authority from. Because John said Jesus was from heaven. <laughs> I mean, John in Mark chapter 1, where it all started, as he's announcing the coming of Jesus, John Mark chapter 1 verse 7 says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's pretty clear. And John believed that Jesus would have the authority to immerse you in the very spirit of God. So what say you Pharisees? Was he right? Or was he wrong? And then look what they immediately go into in verse 31. Mark 11, verse 31. And they discussed it with one another. Now, and, and I, I'm like a visu- kind of more of a visual thinker, so, so like, I don't know if they had, like, okay, group huddle, guys. Like they kind of like... <laughs> went away but, but like okay we, we need to we need to work these these things out so they discussed it with one another, saying if we say from heaven he will say then why did you not believe him but shall we say from man they were afraid the people for for they all held that john was really a prophet and so they did the best that they could right let's, let's, let's give our best answer here in verse 33 so the answer jesus we don't know Now, now I want you to notice the primary driver of that side conversation, that huddle talk. I want you to notice what it was and what it was not. The Sanhedrin began to consider the question with no intention of discerning what is true. Did you see that? They tried to discern which answer will be most advantageous to their lives. No intention of knowing What's true, they're trying to figure out which one works. We call that pragmatism. That is the living and and doing and believing based off of what you think works in your life to accomplish what you desire most. If they say they believe John is from God... They'll have to concede to the fact that Jesus speaks with the authority of God. If they say they don't believe John was from God, then the people will rally against them because they believe John was from God. So they're forced to say the words that no one in the Sanhedrin ever wanted to say, I don't know. It's actually a humiliating moment. They're supposed to be the ones who know. And Jesus has brilliantly asked them a question and forced them into a corner where the only option they have is public humiliation with "I I don't know answer. It's not just that our sinful hearts resist authority. It's that we prioritize self over truth. But truth number three, fruitless religion sacrifices truth on the altar of self fruitless religion sacrifices truth on the altar of self the tendency on display here is not foreign from us they desired their own way more than objective truth they believed what they wanted to believe based on their desires and my question is have you ever done that Have you ever refused to look into a matter because you did not want to know the truth of that matter? As if you not looking in that direction would make it somehow not true anymore, right? Have you ever refused to listen or to study or to inquire of something because your desire for your own way trumps your desire to know and to align with God's truth? We avoid truth to protect and preserve our own desires all the time. It's why when you're living in sin, the first thing that you want to do is not read your Bible daily. And the last thing you want to do is to show up in a setting like a prayer service where you're going to have to sit down and talk with another Christian because you know they're going to expose the very thing which you don't want to hear. And so the first thing you do when you fall into sin is to separate yourself from all modes of truth speaking. Does your desire for being comfortable supersede your desire to live a life in a way that corresponds with reality? Specifically, God's reality. Do you avoid relationships with people who are more spiritually mature than you because you don't want to be spiritually challenged? Beware of the Sanhedrin temptation, which sacrifices truth on the altar of self. In the end of the world, there'll be two kinds of people. Those who love truth, and those who do not. Second Thessalonians chapter two. In our community groups over the last couple weeks, we've we've studied this at the end of time with the lawless one, by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are per- perishing. Listen to why they're perishing: because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. It's those who love the truth that will be saved by the work of Jesus. And in fact, we see Jesus' response to these Sanhedrin at the end of the passage in verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And then Jesus says to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then the story just moves on. Last truth for this morning, truth number four, fruitless religion will not see Jesus. These men are standing in front of the word of God, being smacked in the face with him, the king of kings and lord of lords. They refuse to humble themselves, refuse to repent, refuse to even consider the truth. They've asked a question with impure motives, no desire to know the answer. And then Jesus walks away from them, refusing to play their game. Now, there's a practical reason for this. I mean, the time has not yet come for Jesus to be arrested, tried, and crucified. He aims to be crucified on the Passover day, so he dodges their trap. doesn't openly say, I am the Son of God, and I speak with divine authority. But his refuse, refusal to answer is more than practical. To me, as I'm reading it, it feels symbolic, like a foreshadowing. Like a foreshadowing of God's judgment when God will fully and finally give sinners over to their desires. Where in this life they did not want to know Jesus, thus they will never know Jesus. They refused the revelation available to them, so they won't receive anymore. They hated the light that they had, so into darkness they will be cast out. You're not willing to concede this or even try to know the truth. Jesus says, I'm not going to answer any more questions. How do we respond? The story of Jesus' authority challenged and rejected. What are we to take away from all this? Allow me to, to offer us three suggestions this morning. Number one is this recognize God's authority daily. The Christian life is exactly this it is a daily resubmission to the King of the universe. Jesus' command to deny yourself and to pick up your cross daily is his command for you to resubmit to whatever the will of God is every day. It's the daily submission to an authority which is supreme over the universe and our lives. A daily striving for humility. And one of the ways we do that is through the simple discipline of meditating on the scriptures daily. The place where we find the authoritative word of God. It's If God is our authority, then his words spoken and preserved for us are his authority given to us to submit to. We practice our daily submission by daily sitting down with the Bible and then praying for God to help us to listen, believe, and obey. Some of you are wasting away spiritually because of a lack of discipline to walk in some of the most basic spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. That go as far back as the beginning of the Old Testament. That go all the way back to Psalm chapter 1. Where he's describing the person who truly lives the happy and blessed life. In Psalm chapter 1 verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And listen to what he's like. The person who every day puts his face before the inspired words of God and submits to it. What do they become like? Like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its in season and its leaf doesn't wither and all that he does he prospers if you want to avoid barren fig tree fruitless religion meditate on the authoritative word of God every day it's simple maybe not easy If you don't know where to start in that, um, you don't know how to read God's word every day. I mean, when I was a teenager, I was encouraged to take my Bible, go to the table of contents, go to the New Testament, pick a book of the New Testament and read one chapter a day, no matter what happened in my day. It takes like three minutes. And just to commit. And every time I finished a book, I put a little notch in my table of contents to say, okay, I finished that one. And I worked my way through the entire Bible over the course of several years years. Do that. Pick any New Testament book and just start working through the New Testament first and then move to the Old Testament. If you want something more ordered to go to our website on srcc.org, you can find, uh, strosecc.org, you can find a, a reading plan we're all going through as a church. We're in Exodus right now. You can just jump on. We're in Exodus 33 and 34, and this morning I read it and I was convicted because Moses is praying to God, pleading with God, saying, don't let me go into the promised land if your presence doesn't go with us. I sat there and thought, God, don't let me preach this morning unless your presence goes with me. Praise God for the daily submission to the authority of God's word. That verse drove me to pray much more this morning than I even normally do on a Sunday morning. Number two, reflect God's authority well. So as mentioned a moment ago, there are authority structures in the world designed by God. And those authority structures are designed to reflect the way in which God wields his authority in the world. Every person in this room is in a position of authority over someone else or you're under the authority of someone else. So my question is, how do you submit to and how do you reflect God's authority by the way you wield yours? Parents, do you wield your authority over your children in the same way that God wields his authority over you? When your child that has sinned against you sins and he looks back at you, does he see a reflection of God? Are you patient but firm? Compassionate but just? Selflessly seeking their flourishing more than your own? Husbands, are you are you laying down your life for the flourishing of your wife? You puff your chest up because Scripture makes you the head of the household or do you see that as a responsibility to literally die every day to yourself so that your family might flourish are you kind and forgiving when sinned against teachers do your students see god in your use of authority Bosses, do your employees see gentleness and compassion in you? Do they see excellence in you and the way that you organize things for the sake of their flourishing? Do your employees feel used by you? Do they feel expendable and uncared for? Or do they feel loved? Now, I ask these questions knowing that I myself need to grow in many of these areas. We all have different degrees of authority given to us. But the question is, how do we use it? Do we use it like Christ did, which... Leads us to our last takeaway. Rejoice in God's authority. Jesus is not a tyrant seeking to exploit you, Jesus is a king who gave his life for you. His rules are not constrainers of joy, they are the pathway to joy and he used his authority to humble himself lay down his comfort give rather than take die on a cross and take all of your guilt shame and punishment his authority is not something to be avoided it is something to be celebrated embraced and submitted to because he wields it for our good which simultaneously is for his glory so let me close by reading this text from just a few weeks ago that we studied and you can see how this theme is sort of being traced through the gospel of Mark, and then we'll, we'll pause and pray together. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus called them to him, <coughs> and he said, You know that those who considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray to this God. Father, we just come to you as a church family, uh, recognizing that the sinful tendencies of the Sanhedrin lie within every one of us. And so we come to you pleading that you would protect us from fruitless religion that avoids authority and sacrifices truth on the altar of self. God, we pray that you would lead our church family to be a people who recognize your authority every day as as a good gift for our flourishing. The spiritual discipline of submitting, submitting to your word daily is not a legalistic way of earning the favor of God. It is the place where we experience the favor of God. It is the pathway, the waterfall of grace that God calls us to step into every day. May we not Cast aside such spiritual discipline under the accusation of legalism and thus deprive ourselves of the gifts of God's grace. God, lead our church family to be a people who reflect your authority daily in their families and in their jobs and in this church. And that we would steward our authority as church members to confront and to encourage in the name of love for the good of the other even if it costs us awkwardness. God, lead our church family to rejoice over the authority of Jesus who laid down his life for us to be eternally saved. And God, for the non-Christian in the room who is living as if they're the only authority in their life, help them to see that such a path is the path of destruction. and Help them to turn to Jesus even now and submit to him as their Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.